Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, I know I'm hacking that, but that's close enough, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out to the city of Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reason among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, He will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. 
But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he, tossed, and he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the, the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and is it, it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Let's pray together. Father, we yield our hearts to you. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. Use these verses to make us more like Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you have your word ready anytime we open it to speak to us. Thank you, Father, that's already powerful. Thank you that it will accomplish every work that it's been sent to accomplish in our hearts. We want to be made more into your image through this, through this set of verses, Lord. We ask that you would mold us and shape us so that we can be who you've called us to be. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today is Palm Sunday. Didn't you know that? Palm Sunday. Not by the calendar, but by our verses. We even had Christmas, I think it was in August uh, or July or somewhere in there. We had Christmas. That's what happens when you go through the verses all the way through. You run into different things at different times, which is great. And so here on this Palm Sunday, as we look at it, we're going to see something that is troubling to the Lord. And it's, in what he's, we're gonna, it's gonna unfold as we go through it. Palm Sunday troubles a lot of people when they read the scriptures because they see the fickleness of people. Because this is a Sunday that we're looking at today, but just five days from now, it's going to be the, the day that they're going to be yelling, crucify him. Here they are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Five days from now, they're going to be saying, crucify him, crucify him. Our hearts are fickle. And, and so it can make us uneasy. On this particular Sunday, not only we're going to see this um, you know, Palm Sunday and the events of it, but we're also going to see the Lord Jesus clear out the money changers from the temple area. We're going to see him curse a fig tree. We're going to see him heal people. And then we're going to see him confront the chief priests and Pharisees by telling two parables which expose something very deficient uh, in, in their lies, which will unfold. I want us to get our bearings, though, as we begin by looking at kind of the ge geography to help us understand where we're at. It's been a couple weeks, and, and, and we need to understand kind of where Jesus is. 
quickly hold your place here and turn back just to chapter 19, verse 1. Well, we're told this. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And so we see that little phrase there, the region beyond the Jordan. This is known as Perea. This was the area across from the Jordan from Judea. And a lot of people would come this through this area when they're traveling from the north to the south so that they would avoid Samaria. Racism has been going strong since day one. They don't want to go through Samaria. They consider them half-breeds. They're, they're willing to actually go outside and go south to avoid Samaria just to get to the southern part and so forth. And so this, um, this geography is important because we saw that, that what really began the year of opposition was uh, the Lord Jesus going to Caesarea Philippi and saying, who do, the, who do men say that I am, and so forth. And, and we saw Peter say, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and what Jesus said was, you know, you are pebble, but upon this foundation stone, basically, of, of your confession or the fact that I am who you say I am is the, is the foundation upon which I will build my church. And the defensive mechanisms, the gates, will not be able to withstand the church going forward. So we saw that up in the north, extreme north of Israel in Caesarea Philippi. Since then, he's been making his way south on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to lay down his life for us. Now, Matthew only records a couple chapters of this in this area of Perea, but Luke spends 10 whole chapters from chapter 9 through chapter 19. To, and a lot of things happen in this area that, that we're not told in Matthew, and we'll get there as we go through the, the Gospels. You really need, you know, four Gospels to see kind of a composite of what the Lord intended for us to see. Many more works he did, and as John said, that the libraries of the world probably couldn't contain all of the books that would need to be uh, placed in libraries to, to be able to explain or reveal all his amazing works. So let's go to chapter, uh, chapter 21, verse 1, and we'll start again and read through this. Now, when they drew near... Jerusalem. So he's finally getting to Jerusalem after all this time and came to uh, Bethphage, which means house of figs, at the Mount of Olives. Uh, then Jesus sent two disciples. So here he's drawing near to Jerusalem. And, and so there's a lot about fruit today that we're going to see in this chapter. And it's fitting that he's, you know, came to this city that means house of figs on a Mount of olives that you know olive trees grew there they still grow there today eventually we're going to see him in the garden of gethsemane which means olive press um, and so you know this is an agrarian society this is a farming society so he sent his two disciples saying to them verse 2 go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her loose them and bring them to me and if anyone says anything to you you shall say the lord has need of them and immediately he will send them all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And you'll see at the end of verse, in the middle of verse 5, he says, your, Behold, which means carefully consider, your king is coming to you. And notice how he comes, the middle of verse 5. Lowly and sitting on a donkey, and, and so this was, this is mentioned, this, um, 
this event here on Palm Sunday is mentioned in all four Gospels. And chapter 21 initiates a very important uh, time of fulfillment of these different prophecies cascading quickly. One prophecy given, one prophecy fulfilled, one prophecy revealed in Scripture, and then it's fulfilled over and over again. Fulfillment of prophecies down the road all the way through chapter 21 and on. So it's a very important time. But beyond this, this prophecy, you know, the prophecy and the familiarity of Jesus uh, coming in on a donkey, it, it's really, if you really look at it from a certain perspective, from, from the perspective of the people that were in that culture, it's really all wrong. Everything about it is wrong. I'm talking about this scene here. When you look at the background, you look at the culture, what would be typical of a triumphal entry, that's what we call it. How many of us have heard that? Triumphal entry. Yeah, most of us here. When you think of a triumphal entry, anyone in that culture would, would be thinking of a very specific type of entry or, or parade. That's the better word to say it. And it was the Roman triumphal entries that, that were there in that culture where the king, the conquering general or, or whoever would be coming there in, in a procession and he would be riding a, uh, riding a white stallion, a lot different than a donkey. And he would be leading this procession in victory. Flower petals would be being tossed and thrown. And there would be spoils there from the conquering cities and so forth. And the army, the conquering army, excuse me, would be paraded and and showcased for everybody to see. And, And so this is all wrong. This is not how things were normally done. Here Jesus comes on a donkey, a donkey that's never been written, we're told, in other Gospels. The mother of the donkey was likely there to calm the donkey and so forth. And, and so here Jesus comes in a completely different way, really from the world's standards, untriumphant. I don't know if that's a word, but I'll use it. Hey, untriumphant, not how triumphant entries normally occur. He's not flaunting his weapons. He's not flaunting spoils. He's not proclaiming how great he is in pride and and boasting of himself or any of those things. This is the great humble king. This is the king that rules by love, not by force. This is the king that lays down his life for people that he loves, his beloved. Couldn't be any more different than the Roman kings. Yes, in triumph, but in, in the triumph that would make sense in terms of how God wants him, he wants us to think about his character and his nature, his humble and meek nature in perfect prophetic fulfillment verse 6 so the disciples went and did as jesus commanded them that's a great verse disciples obey what jesus commands them to do it's a good reminder for us verse 7 they brought the donkey and the colt laid their clothes on them and set him on them and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried saying Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is the song that they would sing. Very messianic. This is the time of the Passover. People would be coming to Jerusalem from all over the place. And Jerusalem from, you know, from most places was completely uphill. You're going 17 miles on this road and, and you're singing these, these incredible messianic psalms preparing for 
Passover. And so it's helpful when, when everybody's traveling and walking to have something to focus on. What better way to focus on the Lord than to be quoting these messianic prophecies? Turn over to Psalm 118 real quick. Hold your place in Matthew 21. And I want us to look at this few verses here. Psalm 118 is quoted here at the beginning of our chapter, but also at the end of our chapter, it'll be quoted once more. So I want us to see it. Psalm 118, if you're new to the Bible, it's pretty much the middle of the Bible. It was Israel's songbook, hymn book or whatever. Psalm 118. And I want to begin reading in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. My kids know that verse because I wake them up to that. And they get very, they don't like that sometimes. You know, because I don't want to rejoice in this day because I'm unconscious. and I'm not ready to be awake yet. You know, so they know that, that verse. So this, this, these verses are quoted at the end of our chapter, in chapter 21. But, but now look at verse 25. He says, save now. That's the word Hosanna. Hosan means to save, or Hosan means to save. Na means now. So Hosanna, save now. And that's what we say to him, save now. That's what, that's what his, his mission is. That's what, his, what he came to do is to save. When we get saved, when we receive Christ, We're saying, save now. Save me now, God. I need saving. We don't worry about getting the words just perfectly right. When you fall overboard on a ship and someone wants to, you know, they're they're staring at you, and you're just, save me now. You're not, you know, wondering about how I'm going to word it or whatever. Just throw me a life preserver. And and you're just desperate and so forth. So it continues. It says, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You could equally say at the end of verse 27, nail the Son of God to the cross. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Nail that Son of God. And just in five days, he's going to be bound, and he's going to be nailed to that cross. It's a beautiful messianic passage. Now turn back to Matthew 21. Verse 10, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now we're going to see from this point on, we're going to see a common thread through the rest from verse 12 all the way down to the end of the chapter, a common thread all the way through the verses. And he's going to be dealing with something very, very specific. Look at verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, this isn't the first time that the Lord Jesus has done this. John chapter two reveals that the beginning of his ministry, he did the same thing. And where these Money changers and all of this was set up was around the area of the court of the Gentiles. That's very important for us to know related to understanding that this whole thread that permeates through all the verses all the way to the end of the chapter. The court of the Gentiles. Now these 
money changers. They were there in the beginning probably wanting to provide a service because if you were over 12, you had to go to three Jewish feasts and the Passover was the feast that they're focused on right now. And you had to pay your annual temple tax and you couldn't just pay with Roman money. No one wanted that money. You had to pay with a shekel of tire, either a half shekel or a full shekel of tire. That's the only thing that they would, they would uh, accept. It's the, it's the very silver that, that Judas received, the, you know, the 30 pieces of silver. Those were shekels of tire there that they would receive in the temple. And so they did this as a service along with providing animals because if you were traveling a long ways to Jerusalem, you don't want to haul around an animal with you to bring as a sacrifice. It's much more convenient to pick one up when you're there than to bring one all the way with you however far you were coming. So you didn't want to have to exchange your money somewhere else. It was convenient. You didn't want to have to bring your animals. It was convenient. The problem was that they were ripping people off. He said that my, uh, you've made it into a den of thieves. They were stealing and the, and the important thing is that all of this was done around the area of the court of the Gentiles. Why is that important? It's important because the Jews were always called to be a light to the Gentiles, to, to represent God well before the Gentiles, so that because he wanted to reach the whole entire world. So instead of the temple being a house of prayer, and, and instead of them being a good example to the Gentiles, they were stumbling them, who, those that were possibly there or open to the things of the Lord. They were causing a stumbling block to those who could be seeking him, and God hated that. Verse 14, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, they were not normally allowed there, but that was an erroneous interpretation of Scripture and tradition. God did never forbid, forbade them from, from being there. And so the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, verse 15, and children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. Those Pharisees, chief priests and scribes were indignant. Why? Because they, those children were singing praises that were only appropriate for the Messiah. But their hearts were so hard. Here he was healing. They should have been rejoicing. They should have been rejoicing in what Jesus was doing. But yet they were indignant by the appropriate praise that these children were giving. I love the worship of children. When children, not worshiping children, talking about when children worship, okay? It's beautiful. It's pure in so many ways. They don't have all the hindrances that we have so often when we're caught up in our heads and, you know, thinking about all this stuff. They just have a simple faith in, in the Lord and they want to sing to him. And it's a beautiful thing. Then Jesus said to, to, uh, and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? And I love when he says that to the religious leaders. Have you never read? Because they claim to be experts. I love it. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. So he's quoting Psalm 8, verse 2. Again, the children is, the worship is so pure and so, um, just hasn't been tainted yet in so many ways. And it's such an example to us. Verse 17. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Most likely he stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus already had been raised from the dead. Um, at this point, I believe. Verse 18, now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And I want you to note that at the end of verse 18, he was hungry. 
We'll come back to that. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt and will not only you will not only do what was done to, to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Verse 22, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So he uses it as it as a, it helps them instruct them in faith and trusting God and so forth. And all of that is good. Now, a lot of things are happening in this picture that aren't normal, that aren't we have that we have never seen before. We've never seen anybody openly worship the Lord Jesus like this, like a group of children. I mean, people have worshipped in the sense of after they've been healed and so forth. We've never seen people openly worship the Messiah and him receiving it and, and, and telling him, you know, not telling him to, not, to, to be quiet and don't, don't go tell anybody about what's happened and so forth. He's openly receiving this worship right in front of the religious leaders. He's not afraid. All this time, he's known that there's a specific timing that all of this would happen related to his betrayal. But now it's, it's upon him. He knows that it's happening. And, and it's the right time to happen. We've also never seen him curse anything like this. Where usually he's bringing life and healing. And here he's cursing something and killing something, basically. So let's talk about this fig tree. Let's understand what's going on here. The fig tree, the key to understanding it is knowing that it's really an object lesson. This fig tree has more to do with Israel and what it's lacking than Jesus being upset that his hunger can't be satisfied at the moment. He's not hypoglycemic here. You know, he's not grumpy. You know, when you get grumpy, when you, when you need to eat and so forth. I mean, there were plenty of times where Jesus hasn't had food and the disciples are worried. You know, where, where is he going to get meat or whatever? You know, remember John chapter 4 and so forth. And, and then when he was tempted for, in the wilderness, he didn't eat. I mean, there, it, wasn't as like, it wasn't like as if he hadn't gone without food before. This is something very specific that he's upset about. And, and it's, it's really an object lesson of, and symbolic of something far greater, a deeper problem. Historically, Israel's referred to as the fig tree in the Old Testament. That's one of the keys to understanding this, I believe. And this particular fig tree that Jesus has cursed symbolizes Israel's barrenness or lack of fruit. And just like many of the fig trees in the Old Testament that were barren that represented Israel, this physical tree represents, and, and, and it, he just finished talking about something or doing something in the temple area, and now this fig tree is barren. It's all leaves, <laughs> It's not just a few leaves. It's the whole thing is made up of leaves. It's supposed to have fruit, and it doesn't have fruit. It's all leaves. So let's step back for a moment and look at the big picture of what's going on. Jesus has been demonstrating for over three years that he is the promised Messiah. That's without a doubt. He's been proclaiming himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. So where is the fruit Remember that commercial? Where's the beef? You know, that Wendy's commercial? Okay, yeah, it's not worth remembering. Trust me if you don't know it. But where's the fruit? Where's the fruit of Israel at this point? They have had their Messiah boldly being proclaimed as the Messiah by him, by his works, fulfilling prophecy for over three years. Where is the fruit? Where's the 
Where's the faith? Remember, he's been focusing on faith so much as we've gone through the book of Matthew. And he's found the greatest examples of faith in Gentiles. The, the, the centurion and then the lady up in the north there in, in, uh, in the area outside of Israel. And Gentiles have been the object lesson for faith. Yes, people have believed, but mostly they believe because of what they can get from him. He even mentioned that when he fed the 5,000. You, you, you follow me because of, you know, your stomach's being full. And so, yes, there's been a little bit of faith. There's been people that have put their faith in him. But by and large, as a whole, as John says, at the beginning of his gospel, his own have received him not. And, and there has been zero fruit. In fact, by Friday, they are going to scream, crucify him, crucify him. But it connects further. Look at verse 23. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And now they could be referencing not just the teaching, but the fact that he cleared out the temple and so forth. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will, likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from, where, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, at least they're honest, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, I know that's not a na 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 neener, 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 you know, but I mean, it's just a just appropriate thing of like, I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. It's obvious. And I'm not going to play this game. See, we're really seeing Jesus in like a cauldron of opposition here. It's like climaxing. It's culminating in this incredible opposition where they are just completely coming against him. And he turns it around on them and he asks them some questions. He puts them on the witness stand and he confronts them. See, John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus had the same message. He began his public ministry with repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. These religious leaders went out to not just criticize the Lord Jesus, but they had already previously criticized John the Baptist as well. And we have seen no change in these leaders, no repentance. So that's, he's, he's, he's just exposing them. He's going to do it by a couple of parables now. Verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it. That's, that's important. That's speaking of repentance that he's trying to say that the religious leaders did not have and went. Verse 30, then he came to the second and said, likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not, do, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. I like to call these interactive parables, participatory parables, where he's, he's telling them a parable, but he's interacting with them at the same time and having, drawing out of them answers. And what he's really doing is he's causing them to incriminate themselves by their own mouths. And I'm sure they didn't realize what was happening till it was too late. But the son that said no first, but then 
regretted it and repented, basically, are the tax collectors and harlots that, that didn't set themselves up in the beginning as righteous, but regretted their lives when they heard John's pre, you know, his preaching of repentance. And then they repented. Now, the second son, who said yes at first but didn't go into the vineyard, were the Pharisees, the scribes, these religious leaders. They did start out claiming to be righteous, but hearing about repentance, they hardened their hearts. And even when they saw the harlots and the tax collectors and all these people hear this message of repentance, see them change and bear fruits worthy of repentance, even that didn't affect them and change their heart. They still hardened their hearts, thus demonstrating even more guilt. So they claimed these Pharisees claiming that the first one was right was admitting their guilt, but he doesn't stop there. Verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now Jesus is going to interpret this for us, but let's just take a, a stab at it here ourselves the just identifying who the what everything is the landowner is god the father the son is god the son the vineyard i believe the old testament reveals that it's a symbol of israel and you can look at isaiah chapter 5 and other places for that the vine dressers you can refer to them it'd be more probably in our vernacular what you would say that they were renters or they were co-opting like co-opting a vineyard they were they were farming on behalf of of the, the, the landowner, and they would pay some of the, uh, the, the, the uh, harvest to him as payment for being able to farm his land. Now, now <laughs> look at what Jesus says. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Again, interactive parable here in real time. And what Jesus is doing is he's, he's wanting them to admit their guilt, but he's really, he's really not going to let them go too long without ha- explaining all of this or exposing this because he's, he's basically saying, I'm not going to let you wonder about this forever. This is happening now. This second parable, it's happening now. In five days, you're going to cast the sun outside the wall. This week, five days from now, you're going to do this parable here. And you're going, to, you're going to do something horrible. You're going to crucify the son. And so he asked them, you know, what's going to happen? And so they exposed their guilt. He exposes their guilt. The self-incrimination is, is on display as they are honest and it's breathtaking. Then they said to him, verse 41, we will des- he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits, notice that word fruits, very important to understand this whole chapter, the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Now, we, we tracked that Jesus is the rock all the way back in the Old Testament. He's, uh, it's a, he's the anti-type of, of, or the fulfillment of all the types in the Old Testament of the rock, the foundation stone. Psalm 118 that we looked at, and this is what he, he, they're quoting, uh, Matthew's quoting here, demonstrating that he's the chief cornerstone that they're going to reject. This very week, on Friday, they're going to reject, ultimately, that chief cornerstone and and crucify that chief cornerstone then he says in verse 43 therefore i say to you the kingdom of god will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits there's our word again fruits of it and whoever falls on this stone will be broken but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder now when the chief priests and pharisees heard his parables they perceived that he was speaking of them you think (laughs) you know it's like hello uh, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So I want to tie all of this together to see this thread interwoven through all these verses in this chapter. God always intended Israel to be, as I said, a light to the Gentiles, to be a people through whom everyone else could know God or hear about God or see a different kind of life. It's a picture of the, new, of the Christian life. God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through his seed that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The big picture was always expressed. God never hid it from them. They just chose to ignore it because of their, with their pride and their desire to, to be the focus of everything, and, you know, just like all of our hearts. And so all of this would happen, this knowing the truth and being a light to the Gentiles, all of this would happen through the reception of the Messiah, not just by the Jews, but by the whole world. And so this promised Messiah, his own, as I said, received him not. This God painted this great portrait in the Old Testament so that we wouldn't miss him, and he came, they missed him. So this Messiah, he came on, in a meek way on a donkey. He expected to find a people when he did so, when he came to the city, in, in the beginning, even before this, outreaching to the Gentiles. It's another way of saying bearing fruit. God expected the nation of Israel to bear fruit by being a light to the Gentiles, provoking in them a jealousy, but now he's flipped it with the church. Now we are provoking the Jews to jealousy, and we've been grafted in, as Romans tells us, but we, have, we are provoking them to jealousy because we get to enjoy everything that they were supposed to enjoy by receiving their Messiah and so forth. And God is, is, is using that. God expected the Jews to use the court of the Gentiles as a way to reach the Gentiles. That's what he expected. The Gentiles could go there and learn about God and so forth, maybe become a God-fearer. And then maybe beyond that, become circumcised, obey the feast, and become a, a full-on legitimate proselyte. And, and that didn't happen. When God was there seeing all of that, twice he found people stumbling the Gentiles by misrepresenting God, by ripping people off. Unbelievers can see when people are being ripped off. We turn on Christian television, and there's some that's good on there, but so much of it is not good. It's ripping people off. And it's sad when unbelievers look at that and say it's just all a sham it's all about money it's all about all those things they're just ripping people off it grieves the heart of god because god wants every medium notwithstanding television to to be a a tool that we can use to to proclaim to this lost world the solution to their biggest problem which is their need for forgiveness so they they didn't find that he didn't he didn't find that fruit there 
So Jesus cursed this fig tree. Again, it wasn't because his, 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 he was grumpy or hypoglycemic. It was because it was a representative of God's hunger for spiritual fruit from the spiritual fig tree, the nation of Israel, and he cursed it. Also, when Jesus actually bears fruit in the temple by healing somebody, they're indignant. They're not only are they not bearing fruit, they're offended when someone else is bearing fruit, the Messiah, showing that he is the Messiah by doing what only the Messiah could do. That's one more example of, of not bearing fruit. The leaders were more accountable than anyone else. They knew better. They knew the scriptures better than anybody else. That's why it made them mad when he said, haven't you read? Because they had read, but they just hadn't repented. They were supposed to be leading the people in the reception of the Messiah and outreaching to the rest of this world, but they failed to do that. They did not repent. Even when they saw tax collectors and harlots' lives changed and others, they refused to repent. They rejected John's message of repentance. They rejected the Messiah's message of repentance. And, and, and by their own admission, they were guilty. And they won't be satisfied until five days later, they put that Messiah on the cross. And of course, all of our sin put Jesus on the cross, of course. It just speaks that God wants fruit from his people. He wanted it from the Jews. He wants it from his people. Because where does that leave us? Are we more accountable than the Jews were related to fruit? I say so. Who much is given, much is required. We've received the Messiah. We've had our lives changed. We have 2,000 years of church history. And we've seen changed lives ourselves and our own lives and other people. We've seen so much. And he has, his expectation is that we would be bearing fruit. I want to read in a familiar passage to you. John 15, uh, verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may, be more, that it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Now, abide means to remain to dwell. That's what it means. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. There you go. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. Didn't we hear this already when Jesus talked about when you, when you pray, believe, believe, and, and, and it will be done for you? Same exact thing. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. I'm going to say it again. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We looked at Matthew chapter 10 when we were going through there verse by verse and we saw kind of what Jesus said to those that were going out to outreach. And it was a great, it's a great chapter for those that are going out in missions and short-term ministry and so forth and long-term ministry. He said in Matthew chapter 10 verse 7, and as, I, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of God is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. See, that can be the problem with us because we're so self-consumed and focused on ourselves. Freely giving is God's goal of our freely receiving. 
as much as he loves to bless us, he loves his kids. We just had Christmas. How, how many of us parents love to bless our kids and we enjoy way more giving than receiving? That's how God is as well. As much as he loves to bless us and enjoys it more than we do, it's not, all of this is not supremely for us. It's supremely for him and for others, for our lives to affect others. Are apples for the apple tree's benefit? No. It's for whoever walks up to that apple tree and plucks that apple from the tree. It's for their enjoyment. We think the fruit of the Spirit is supremely for our enjoyment. It's not. It's for God's enjoyment and for other people's enjoyment that walk up to our tree, so to speak, our lives, and get to enjoy love and peace and all those things that come forth from, by the Holy Spirit, self-control and all those things. It's beautiful. See, the fruit looks like changed lives through, that's happening through our lives. Paul the Apostle wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared for us in advance that we should walk in them. It's about changed lives. If my life isn't affecting other people's lives, and, and he knows, of course, we need to affect the lives in our family. That's a given. When he talks about the church and serving and all that, he's talking about outside of our family. I mean, our family's a ministry. I'm not saying it's not. But he's ta- that's, kind of an op- that's kind of an obvious thing. That's kind of a thing where he says, yes, that's, you should, of course, you need to be taking care of your family. That's like a bare minimum. But we need to go outside and affect the body of Christ. And there's two, or affect people, there's two kinds of people, saved and unsaved. <laughs> that's just it. There's two kinds of people in this world. And so he's called us to reach the saved by serving them, by being a part of the church and by serving our, our brothers and sisters and so forth and building them up. And that, that's what makes everybody be made into disciples so they can go out there and preach the gospel to this lost world. But there's also people that are unsaved. They need the gospel. That's why God had the court of the Gentiles in the first place be put there to provoke an interest there. It wasn't for the Jews. They didn't have a need for a court of the Gentiles. Yes, it was on the outside. It, there was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, the, the, um, the holy place, the inside of the temple where the priests served and so forth, then the holy of holies in there where the, only the high priest could go. So yes, the Gentiles were all the way on the outside, but they were still there for a purpose. That reveals the heart of God. He laid out that plan for a reason, that the Gentiles would come and be exposed somewhat to the things of God and provoke a hunger and a thirst for them. Our lives are supposed to do the same thing. Our lives are kind of a a court of the Gentiles in the sense we are there representing the Lord and being close enough to unbelievers so that they can be exposed to the things of the Lord, that they can have a thirst and a hunger for the things and be curious and ask questions and, and all these things. But if, if we never ever are in contact with them, we're never willing to preach that gospel and we love people's opinions more than we love the fact that these people could go to heaven or hell, then we're going to just be content with just letting people be around us that don't know Christ and be unwilling to preach the gospel to them. And I exhort myself. I encourage myself as well. We're not called to waste our life. We're not called to hoard life's resources and God's blessings on ourselves. You know, swamps are swamps because there's no outlet. God wants us to have an outlet all the time so we can just be a vessel through whom he can do amazing and and miraculous things and, and bear fruit. He wants fruit from your life. He has an expectation. There's something called the sinfulness of fruitlessness where he, he's, he recognizes that we will not 
abide in him. We will not remain in him. We will not dwell and, and make our home in him in a spiritual sense of being dependent upon him and letting him work his, what only he can do through our lives and bear fruit through our lives. We're unwilling to do that. That is being a bad steward. That's being sinful. That's hoarding everything that he's blessed us with on ourselves. And that's something that needs to stop. Don't waste your life. Give it away. Remember when Jesus said, if anyone wants to lose his life or save his life, will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels, one, one of the gospels says, will find it. It's not just about my own personal, great, wonderful, blessed life. It's about other people and how he wants to use my life to affect other people. God wants fruit. He wants fruit that remains. And we just read the passage there that that's how he's glorified. By us bearing fruit and us making a difference in this world for him. Let's allow these verses, this whole chapter of him focused on fruit and how important it is. Let's allow that to work in our lives as we prepare to worship now. Maybe he wants to arrange some things, change our priorities. Maybe our priorities have been completely off, and we know it. And we need to change those things around and start putting him, seeking first the kingdom of God and letting him add all everything else to us that, that he, he knows that we need. Let's put him first, especially coming with this new year. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for just your amazing exhortation to us how you want to bear fruit through us we do recognize that apart from you we can do nothing we can't produce fruit only you can help every one of us here father to abide in you so that you can work in and through our lives lord we recognize that you want to prune us at times to make us more fruitful help each one of us here to not resist that but to embrace it so that we can be more fruitful for you We want you, Father, to get a good uh, return on your investment. We want to be good stewards. We want to be fruitful for you. Help us to be other-centered and focused on you and others. And help us to give our lives away, Jesus, like you did. You didn't come to be served, but to serve. Help our lives to be marked by that as well. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.